Hey, everybody, and welcome to the NFL Roadshow. Lindsay Rhodes here with a guest today from one of my favorite podcasts, the PFF NFL podcast, Sam Monson, who was one of the first PFF employees back in the day and who tells us in this episode how the whole company came together and how it's changed over the years and how he uses the data created by the company in his analysis. We also talk about the famous PFF grades, infamous perhaps. They obviously get their fair share of criticism. I think that they are useful tools. He tells us the ways in which they are meant to be useful and why context still matters when discussing them. Plus, I share with Sam why I was drawn to their podcast in the first place, what my frustrations with a surplus of quarterback conversations had to do with it. And ironically, that leads to to a conversation about quarterbacks. <laughs> there is apparently no escaping the subject matter. Anyway, I enjoyed the conversation and the fact that we agree about one of my favorite under-the-radar teams heading into next year. If you've listened for a while, you probably have an idea of where that is going. So without further ado, it is PFF OG Sam Monson. Let's break the huddle. Hello, let's go! Two, all, two, all, two. Ready? Ready? Sam, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate this. I understand from listening to your podcast that you have somewhat of like a break in action that is coming up in the next few weeks. What's the story there? Yeah, certainly me. Steve's still hard at it at the uh, the podcast grind, but I'm <laughs> taking off for a couple of weeks on a, a giant road trip with my dad. We're driving an old 1960s E-Type Jag from basically just outside San Francisco all the way to Orlando. So like 3,600 miles worth in a, a car that was built in the 1960s. Actually, technically speaking, it was just rebuilt. So it's, it's as good as it's ever going to be, but that's that's going to be fun, I think. That's incredible. Where did Where did the idea for that come about? Just the two of you talking and wanting to do something together, or is there something else behind it? No, my dad's a big kind of old classic car nut. Um, he's uh, So he had this car basically built, basically restored from the ground up and was like, look, we could ship it over like, you know, a normal person or we could drive it um, and go on a giant road trip and try and raise some money for charity and all those kinds of things. So we're raising money for cancer research um, doing this. And yeah, it should be should be a fun time. That That is it's like one of those, you know, life memories. Uh, except I think when you're anticipating the life memory going into it, that puts a lot of pressure on it, <laughs> right? Like, no, this will be memorable. We're going to like love each other so much on this trip so that we can remember how much we loved each other for the rest of our lives. Well, it'll definitely be memorable. I think the jury is out on how it will be memorable. <laughs> Good, the, bad, whatever. Sam, how are we feeling about Arthur Smith this week? Yeah. Um, I, look, I think that the, team generally has done a really good job this off season. Um, I think they've had one of the best off seasons, I think of any team, even though they're trading away, you know, a franchise quarterback, a guy that's been there since 2008, um, a, a guy that's been there since, you know, the last decade and has been the reason that this team has been successful has, has almost gotten them to the promised land. They flirted with the Deshaun Watson thing. They ended up not getting uh, not getting Watson. He goes to Cleveland. At that point, I think that sparked the rebuild, right? They they did some weird things with contracts the last couple of years, and that's kind of put them in the hole in terms of all this um, dead cap money. But ultimately, they were going to have to rip that Band-Aid off at some point. I think that kind of burned the bridge with Matt Ryan and 
led them to trading him away. But once they've done that, once they put themselves in this position of, look, this is the first thing that needs to happen. We need to tear this thing down, get rid of the old quarterback and start afresh. From that point on, you have to like everything they've done. They brought in a stopgap quarterback in Marcus Mariota. They get another one in the draft in the third round, Desmond Ritter, who you know could push to start sooner rather than later. And their draft generally, I think, was full of really good draft picks. Obviously, a wide receiver right up top, but Arnold Ebiketti, a pass rusher, just adding talent and guys that should be able to start as part of this rebuild and really push the Falcons back to some kind of contention in the future. I love that you heard that question and just took it straight rather than in a defensive manner, um, which I was kind of feeling you out to see if like his comments earlier in the week about the people that are on the outside of football that are invested in team building strategies and that talk about all of these, uh, you know, how to put together a game plan and stuff like that. Were you, did you hear his comments? Yeah, but PFF was like, we've got a fairly tuned, you know, blinkered system now for things that NFL coaches and GMs say, because, you know, those guys are never in love with anything that goes against what they're trying to put out there into the public sphere, right? So you hear a lot of head coaches complain about PFF, but it's typically because somebody's asking them a question about somebody where PFF is painting the opposite picture to the one that they're trying to put out there. So they're obviously going to be defensive and dismissive of, of what we're doing. So, yeah, generally, I think you have to take a lot of what head coaches and general managers say, you know, with a grain of salt. And we tend to forget that the second the draft finishes, right? Like, we go through a couple of months well aware of everything that's being put out there being fabrication or spin or made up or smokescreen, whatever it is. And then as soon as the draft happens, we assume they're telling the truth again. And everything that they say is right on the level. And well, he told me that he was, you know, fully invested in Justin Fields. Why would he lie? Oh, yeah. Geno Smith is in the lead. You know, he has an edge over Drew Locke. Uh, obviously, you know, probably might be the starting quarterback as if there's any chance that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, constantly, those guys are not necessarily telling you the truth. They're telling you what yeah. benefits them the most. Well, that's the thing about his comments that rubbed me the wrong way. Um, because it was like, I, I understand that in general, the, the concept of you guys on the outside do not have all of the information. And so for you to come to conclusions on the outside that are as like black and white in your brain, as, as a lot of people do, um, you're doing it without a full set of information. I think that's obviously true. Like anybody who's worked in any environment knows that if people just looked at something from the outside, they wouldn't know like, yeah, but like I'm working next to Jackie, who's totally holding me back. You know what I mean? Like there are things that, you know, that people uh, on the outside don't. That said, it, it felt like he was just saying like, so nobody else is kind of allowed to have an opinion about any of the things that we do. And there are certain things that are obviously true. Like uh, I can deduce that you are probably not giving me all of the information on purpose about who your starting quarterback is going to be. And I can deduce that uh, when you say that everybody is in the best shape of their life at this time of year, that maybe that that might not actually be true. Cause we hear it every time of, you know, at this time of year, every year. Um, but uh, so I thought it was interesting, just like the the full slam on the outside. And it felt not directed at PFF specifically, but obviously PFF, it kind of lands on that because you guys are very high profile in terms of talking about 
your philosophies about team building and things like that. I think, I think very smartly. And I think if, if, uh, uh, I think more head coaches, and I would imagine a lot of head coaches are actually open to hearing what you guys have to say. I know you have deals with a lot of the teams, so I would imagine that that's the case, right? Yeah, all of them. Um, all 32 NFL teams and like 115 or something college teams as well. Uh, look, yeah, I think there's a grain of truth in what he's saying in terms of certainly it's very dangerous to talk in absolutes about anything. Yeah. And the longer you cover football, the more you realize that and kind of convince yourself, uh, teach yourself that it's a mistake doing that, right? Josh Allen's a great example. Before Josh Allen, there was basically no quarterback we'd seen who had gone from being that inaccurate, that just bad at, at playing the position relative to, to all the things he's got to do to, to becoming as good as he's been and to becoming as accurate as he's got. Nobody's made that kind of jump before. So if you had been talking about Josh Allen before that, it would have kind of made sense to say, well, this is just not happening, right? You might want to invest in him. He might be a great guy. He's got the tools, but he's not making that kind of jump because it doesn't happen. But then it happened, right? So the more you you pay attention to the NFL, the longer you're doing this, the more there's always an outlier somewhere. There's always somebody that's going to make any absolute seem crazy in a few years' time. And the best you can do is kind of try and make that point without, you know, turning it into an absolute and instead of saying, look, the chances of this panning out are very, very small. And if you're upset by that, there's not much I can do about it because that's that's what all the data is telling us so far. Maybe you have a little bit more behind the scenes, but everything we can see says that this is a bad idea or a great idea or whatever it is. Well, and also sometimes if you have more data behind the scenes, sometimes you can get clouded by that. Sometimes you have an emotional investment. Sometimes you want something to be true. Sometimes you see sure. that that glimmer of potential and you put more stock in the potential than you're putting in all of the other evidence that there is that that is never going to overwhelm the other thing. I wonder if you guys are more in a position to um, to just naturally not not discuss things in absolutes because of the math background, right? Like unless something is factually absolute, then you guys are more like trained in your brains to see possibility because you're looking at probability and odds as opposed to just something that's a gut feel or an emotion. Yeah. I mean, the math guys in particular, you know, Eric Eager, our, our head of R&D, those guys talk smart. about- I love him. He is. The, the, those guys talk about like a range of outcomes, right? Or a distribution curve, right? And the idea being that at the very end of this curve somewhere, there's a zero point whatever percent chance that this thing pans out, which is a tiny chance. It's all practically speaking, never going to happen, but there's at least that chance. It's, you know, it's the, um, the Jim Carrey thing from, uh, from Dumb and Dumber, right? So you're telling me there's a chance. There's still this minuscule chance that that could actually happen. And it's automatically baked into the data. It's part of the whole thing. Whereas if you're just coming at this without the data or without the math background, you're going to look at that and say, yeah, I mean, that, that's never going to happen, right? Um, so I think there is that sort of inbuilt understanding that there, in these range of outcomes, there is a possible scenario, a possible world where something crazy or completely unexpected happens, but it's still, it's learning how to sort of point people at, yeah, but the, the majority of the time, this is what you expect to happen. Are you not a math guy? No, I actually don't have a math background. So I was one of the first guys in a PFF. Um, 
And we were just a collection really of, of football fans who Neil Hornsby set up the website, um, all the in, all the early guys in a PFF. We basically knew Neil just through online um, NFL fan forums and that kind of thing. We came on and started helping him do great games, great games, do all the player participation data, all that kind of stuff. And it was only once we grew to a certain point that we could hire guys with a math background to make sense of all this data that we collect. You know, we've been able to do some very kind of rudimentary stuff and, and figure out trends and all that kind of stuff, but they were able to put the data to real work and, you know, create impressive things out of it and kind of give us a much more solid foundation in terms of a math background. What was the hook that brought you guys all together as, um, you know, aside from just general like NFL fandom and, and a desire to um, analyze the games, was there something else that you guys all had in common with regard to the way that you looked at games prior to the math component being baked in? No, it was really, you know, this idea of you go back to a world pre-PFF and pre-all this advanced data, and you would just hear things that didn't sound right, right? Yes. There would be guys on broadcast, and they'd tell you, oh, this guy's one of the best players in the game. And you're like, I'm pretty sure that's not true, but I haven't watched every player for every snap, and, you know, we haven't got the data to, to say so. So the whole sort of ethos behind PFF was, well, let's start tracking this stuff. Let's start grading players on every play and if we get enough data you'll be able to say the next time you know an announcer says something crazy like that you'll have the numbers and you'll be able to say well he's not one of the best players in the game he gave up five sacks you know in the last three weeks or whatever it is so i think ultimately it was just all of us wanting a little bit more information a little bit more data better data than, than was available back then than just reciting all of the same talking points that everybody else was saying so this is kind of how i ended up coming to you guys um uh, your podcast with Steve, the um, PFF NFL podcast, was one of the first NFL podcasts that I started listening to um, after the Around the NFL podcast, which I had been on a few times, and I certainly love what those guys are doing. But I specifically was, as somebody who was kind of on the hamster wheel of like NFL 24-7, um, doing a daily show five days a week, 52 weeks a year, uh, I was constantly in the, uh, like on the cycle of news, right. And then how to talk about the things that were in the news. What I really wanted was a different perspective in my ear that was looking at it, not from an opinion based perspective. Like I didn't want to turn on sports talk radio. I didn't want to hear people talking about what they thought or like opining about the top five quarterbacks and is Josh Allen better than Patrick Mahomes and having that debate or anything like that. I wanted somebody who was going to bring something different to the table and make me look at the games differently. And the fact that you guys do that through like a data driven prism your conversations about the games when I download the podcast on Monday morning and would listen on my way to work uh, to to the way that you guys would recap the games, it felt like there were always things that were mentioned in your recaps that were not something that I was going to find in my conversation throughout the day at NFL Network. And so it just kind of lodged different things in my brain and took my conversations that I was able to have with the people there in a, a wider um, uh, just in different, different areas that it wouldn't have gone otherwise. Cause it, it tends to, and I know that you have noticed this cause everybody notices this on television. It's like, it's always about the quarterback. 
or whoever the star player is. And there's very little time to get into the weeds about, you know, whether or not the left tackle was just like in his bag, you know, that game or whether or not the right guard is just a turnstile or something like that. Those sorts of things never really get analyzed. And so I loved that you guys would talk about the grades and the players that played really well. And then the players who did not play really well, because sometimes, like you said, it could be a star player that we talk about, like it's one of the best players in the league, but they're not actually playing well. And so um, I, I really appreciated that you guys sort of approached the whole thing from a very um, specific perspective. Yeah. And it's tough because quarterbacks are so important in today's NFL. And, and really, even when you, you know, start generating the kind of data that the R and D guys do from from the kind of base stuff that we have. It doesn't change that picture, right? You don't come away and say, "Well, actually, it turns out you know guards are really important, <laughs> safety plays everything." Like quarterback is everything; it really is. It's a passing league. The pressure on those guys has never been greater. The responsibility has never been greater. They are what moves the needle. But what the data and what all the sort of information the PFF collects allows you to do is sometimes explore the things that are impacting the quarterback, right? And it's not always just whether they had a good or a bad game. It's, well, yeah, but this guy's left guard was a turnstile this game. So all of a sudden, a quarterback that's used to not having any pressure is under pressure constantly in this game. It doubled his, you know, the amount of snaps that he's usually facing pressure and whether or not he's sacked, that makes a difference. Like simply pressuring the guy is going to cause problems or, you know, pointing to a, a wide receiver corner matchup that was huge in the game or, you know, a defense that was doing something weird. Like last season when everybody in the world was playing Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs with these two high coverage looks and the Raiders just wandered in there with their single high defense and said, no, we'll, we'll keep doing what we do. And then Patrick Mahomes just, you know, blowtorched them. And they did it twice, right? They didn't, they didn't learn the lesson. They backed off tiny bit the second time in terms of those single high shells, but they just ran the same coverage. So those kind those kinds of things are fun to be able to kind of put numbers to it and say, yeah, what we thought we saw, like here, here's what it actually was. This is how much cover one or cover three, the Raiders are playing in that game. How do you take in all of the numbers that PFF is spitting out without getting paralyzed? Like, are there specific things that you go to look for after games? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can't. Um, and a lot of the times when we're doing it, when, when the games are on on Sunday, you know, I'm kind of writing notes of things you thought you saw, you know, because the, the weird thing about games this is why PFF is kind of is a really useful tool is that your memory is like a terrible. Right? It's all so bad. It, it doesn't, a, it doesn't remember things correctly. B, um, the way you kind of remember th parts of a game, it's like a highlight reel, right? You remember a few big things good or bad and you kind of toss out everything in the middle but everything in the middle is really the majority of the game like that's where the the thing was decided so you see a couple of things you see or you see something one or two times and you go well I, this feels like it's a it's something that's happening but they're all the games are happening right now you, you don't have time to kind of chart it individually so that's when you go back you know before the podcast on monday and check if that was actually a thing that happened right did were that were was this team blitzing a ton right or did i just see like two blitzes in a row and decide that they were blitzing a lot so you can kind of check out things like that and sometimes it'll be exactly what you thought it was you know this team employed blitzes three times their usual rate this week sometimes it, it's just your mind playing tricks on you you just saw the the two or three times it happened in, in quick sequ sequence and thought that's what what 
uh, spat out. So a lot of the times, you know, you'll work through the notes of things you saw, you thought you saw, but also just kind of running through the data and you have a, you have a pretty good baseline, you know, in your mind from having done this for a while and you just look for things that jump out as different, like weird uh, outliers, something that was very off the usual um, number that you expect to see in a given area. And then that'll kind of tell you a little bit of the story of that game. How much stock do you think you can put in the grades? Cause there have been this off season in particular, I've gone, I've used the PFF um, team tab and then gone to lineup. Like when I, prior to the draft looking for like, where are their holes? You know, like let's look at the layout. Cause I like the way that, that the PFF website does it, where it looks like, um, uh, like a, like a depth chart, but specifically where the positions are on the field. And then it has the player's name and then their PFF grade for the prior season. And I would just look at that and be like, where, where are the reds? You know, like this is a, an area of weakness. And I was somewhat shocked when I would go to certain teams about some really big name players who get a lot of credit for being good that had really low grades last year. And I kind of thought, well, I don't know. I don't know if that, you know, the circumstances might be different for each individual player, but like a Devin white, for instance, right. Like had an awful grade. Does that mean that Devin grade is uh, the Devin white is not as good as maybe we think, or we talk about him or is there a potential outlier with regard to the grades for individual players? Yeah. um, So the first thing is, you know, one number is never going to be able to tell you what a player is, right. Just, permanently because aside from anything else that changes year on year and that's one of the things you can kind of see with the grading is that elite players are terrible players their seasons are going to bounce all over the place you can have bad players have a good year you can have great players have a bad year um and sometimes you can there's a reason for it like a guy plays through injury his his level of play drops and it's easily explainable sometimes there's no explanation for it and a good player just doesn't have a particularly good year and he'll bounce back next year or whatever. So anytime you're sort of saying, well, okay, let's quantify how a guy's playing. The next question you need is, well, over what period of time, right? Are we talking just last year? Are we projecting this forward into the following year? Are we talking the last three years worth of data? So there's always that question of, you know, how much playing time, how, over what period of time are we judging this guy? And then there's the sort of idea of, the production grade or the efficiency, the execution um, versus a talent level. And that I think is a a big part of this and where the grades can be not misleading, but don't tell the entire picture. Um, So somebody recently described the grading as like an execution score, right? How well were you doing the job that you tried to do? And that's that's essentially what the grade is going to spit out. But there are players that have more difficult roles than others, even players in the same position, right? Cornerback was always a good one for this, where, um, you know, Richard Sherman versus Patrick Peterson, when they were both in their heyday, Richard Sherman essentially played left cornerback the entire game. And okay, the Seahawks would, you know, roll coverage away from him and isolate him a little bit. But generally speaking, he didn't have to follow guys. He, he lined up in the same place. He was playing a lot more zone than some other corners. And then Patrick Peterson would be in man coverage almost the whole time. He would track guys left and right and even into the slot, which is about as hard a job as a cornerback is going to have, right? So Peterson had an objectively harder job than Richard Sherman, but Sherman would always have a much better grade. So how much does that job 
bridge that gap. And does it, it obviously makes them closer together, but the question is how far? Same thing with offensive linemen, right? It's easier to pass block if you're not pass blocking for as long. So guys that are pass blocking, Roethlisberger last year had the fastest average time to throw in the NFL, right? Lightning quick, 2.2 seconds, ball's gone. It's actually pretty hard to give up pressure in under or in, in, in under 2.2 seconds. So the Steelers' offensive line had a really pretty easy job last year. This year, whether it's Trubisky or Kenny Pickett, those two guys are at the other end of the scale, right? Trubisky and Kenny Pickett both hold on to the ball a long time. And okay, they can offset some of that by moving around and extending the play and athleticism, but they are going to be stressing that offensive line's pass protection in a way they didn't get stressed last year. Um, and that will affect the grading. Like just having to pass block for longer is going to mean those guys give up more pressure and they're going to get negatively graded because of it. And the chances are their grades go down this year um, because they have a harder job to deal with. What is your take on Mitchell Trubisky and whether or not he has a chance to be the starter there? I think he probably ends up being the starter more because I don't think that Kenny Pickett is particularly ready to start right away, partly because of that um, incredibly long average time to throw, which is something that usually gets worse for young quarterbacks in the NFL. I, I, you don't see college players with that kind of length of time to throw generally. It's a, he's an outlier at the college level. And for that to translate to immediate NFL success feels unlikely. I also think his pocket presence generally is a little bit ropey. Um, I, I don't love that when he, when he takes his eyes off the play and tries to find an escape route and run, he tends to completely lose sight of the pass play. Like he's looking to make a play with his legs. And while he's a decent athlete, he's not, you know, an elite, elite level NFL athlete. So generally I think Pickett is going to need a little bit of time, a little bit of work. So it feels a lot like what happened with Trubisky and Mike Lennon, you know, back with the bears that they signed Lennon to that $45 million deal. Glennon got like four or five games, I think, before Trubisky came in and, and was the starter. I, I would imagine a similar thing happens in Pittsburgh. Trubisky starts the season, but unless he plays dramatically better than we've seen from him in the past, he's probably only going to get four or five games before they throw in the first round rookie. Do you think there's a chance that he will play dramatically better? Because I'm one of those people that I was not a Trubisky fan but by any means in Chicago, but at, at the end, I was more uh, anti Nagy, Nagy, God, him and Jim and Matt, the, the different ways they pronounce their name really get me. Anyway, I was not a fan of Nagy, especially after we saw him with Justin Fields and doing some of the things that he was doing there that were just befuddling. So I am more inclined to think like maybe Trubisky um, was hamstrung by the coaching there and that I don't know yet if he can be a I don't think he's going to be an elite NFL quarterback. I don't think there's any chance of that, but maybe he's a serviceable, maybe he's an average, maybe he's a good enough, you know, NFL quarterback. I don't know that I know the answer to that yet. And there was, I mean, what he does in the preseason is whatever, right? He looked good in the preseason. There were people that I talked to from the bills that were saying he looked really, really good this year at practices, whatever that means. And then, you know, he didn't get a big contract. Nobody went after him, like clamoring to pay him a ton of money. So obviously word didn't get out so much so that, you know, he got he got as big a contract as I think I was probably expecting him to get at the end. But um, I, I don't know, based on what you've seen, do you think that there is any hope 
for him to be better in this situation, or do you think we pretty much know who he is? I probably like a little bit of both. I think we pretty much know who Mitchell Trubisky is, but I think this is a good situation for him to be in. Uh, I think maybe the thing in his favor the most is that he had that year of just resetting, just not going straight into it again. You know, when, when you have a quarterback that is, has been struggling and developing bad habits and just sort of getting into this rut. And I'm kind of with you that I think by the end, it was more of a Matt Nagy problem than it was a Mitchell Trubisky problem. But I think it started off the other way around, right? Where Trubisky just wasn't good. And this was a successful, productive NFL offense. And then the more Matt Nagy tried to change it to help Trubisky, the more it had just the opposite effect and everything got worse. And he kind of lost the things that made the offense successful in the first place. So the, the once you have a guy that's just developed all those bad habits, though, I think having a year to sit on the sideline and kind of reset and reboot, I think is probably a good thing, particularly in Buffalo with, you know, Brian Dayball as a coach with Josh Allen in front of them. That was a good environment, I think, to take 12 months. Um, and I think we'll see if that had some kind of restorative effect. Um, and maybe we'll see, like PFF had him as the number one ranked quarterback coming into that draft class, right? This is a draft class with Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes Trubisky was the number one guy. Okay, there were concerns, right? We'd only really seen it for one year. And um, and it was more sort of that we hadn't, more questions about Watson and, and Mahomes than it was real ringing endorsement of Trubisky. But he's a talented quarterback, and then it just didn't work in Chicago. So I think there's a possibility that he plays better than we saw with the Bears, but I doubt we're going to see you know a dramatic leap or jump forward from him. Are there any quarterbacks out there that are kind of on that bubble that where we're trying to figure out if they're good or not that you feel strongly um, more that that they are likely to tip into the good area than the bad? Or do you think the fact that there are even question marks about them probably means bye? Yeah, I, I think we're reaching this point now where getting serviceable quarterback play isn't actually that hard. And, you know, you don't have to go back that far for that not to be the case at all. Alex Smith got a hundred million dollar contract, I think in 2013, because like the concept, like Alex Smith was an average quarterback at best, but the prospect of not having Alex Smith, you know, if you didn't have this average level quarterback, you could do so much worse and you could have a completely non-viable offense because there just weren't 32 starting caliber quarterbacks in the NFL. Now I think you can get that level of play actually reasonably easily, right? Jameis Winston hasn't been able to get a gig at all until the Saints kind of eventually come calling once everything else doesn't work out for them twice now. And Jameis Winston's a serviceable NFL quarterback. That guy can start. That guy can be fine. He can make Great. a lot of big plays. He put up you know 5,000 yards and 30 touchdowns. He can make a lot of plays. Obviously, there are, there are issues as well, and that's why he's not um, you know, getting a ton of interest, but you can find a Jameis Winston or a Marcus Mariota, or you know, right now the, the Browns. You think Marcus falls into that category? Is he serviceable or is he bad? No, I think he's serviceable. I, you know, he's he was playing badly by the end of his time in Tennessee, but again, I think a kind of reboot did him good, and we saw flashes of that with the Raiders. Um, you know, Baker Mayfield right now, the Browns can't get anybody to take him off their hands. Baker Mayfield is a perfectly serviceable starter. Jimmy Garoppolo, like these guys are everywhere. But the difference now is, is that top 10 guy, right? Can you find a quarterback that puts you into that top 10 where they elevate everybody else around them and, you know, 
become the guy that takes you to the Super Bowl. And that I think is a as hard to find as it's ever been, but that's the kind of question that teams are now asking. So if you have a Daniel Jones or a Baker Mayfield or one of these guys that you're still not 100% sure on, the question is not like, can he start for us and be fine? The question is, does he have it in him where there's a season where he looks like Matthew Stafford, right? And he takes a team to the Super Bowl. And that, I think, is, is where teams are kind of going and saying, probably not. Let's let's move on from this guy. Right. That's the toughest. That's the toughest situation to be in, I think, because if you have a guy that you could potentially get to the playoffs with. Um, but is not an elite quarterback, then it's hard to move on from that person because you could be worse off. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's that's where the Vikings are. Right. With Kirk Cousins, where Kirk Cousins has been a really good quarterback, but he's probably never going to like single handedly drag a team through the playoffs to the Super Bowl. But he might get you to the playoffs pretty much every year. So the Vikings are now in the situation where they're paying him a ton of money for that, right? For this idea of he'll always get you on the fairway, but then can he take you, you know, the the rest of the way, and can he get get you where you need to go in terms of a Super Bowl? And so far, the answer to that has been no. But the prospect of not even getting on the fairway is what's scaring scaring them away from just you know cutting ties and trying all over again. So guys like Tua and Jalen, do you think that there's a possibility that they turn into some elite option that is worth building your franchise around? Or do you think at this point we're testing them out to see if they're serviceable? Yeah. So for Tua, I think like this will be the first year that we actually have a fair analysis of him. Um, Obviously, he doesn't have the physical tools of, you know, guys like Justin Herbert drafted just behind him. I don't know. Tyreek says he throws one of the prettiest balls he's ever seen. So he said pretty. Yeah, he didn't say like it went where it <laughs> needed to go. He just said it was pretty to watch. You know, when he was he had a lot of time to sort of stand there waiting for it and admire it on its way. Um, yeah, look, Tua doesn't have those kind of tools, but he's also had the worst offensive line in the NFL in front of him since he got drafted. He hasn't necessarily had a great group of receivers. The offensive scheme hasn't been amazing. For the first time, I think he's going to be at least serviceable in all three of those areas scheme offensive line and receiving weapons and actually in some areas they should be significantly better than that so at least we'll have a fair evaluation of what he can do at this level and you know if you're a betting person again or the range of outcomes again you would say yeah the distribution curve probably says he's not going to be great but at least this is the first time where i think it's a fair evaluation of him hertz is a little bit more interesting because his rushing threat kind of changes everything. Um, like he wasn't, a, he's still not a particularly great passer. He leaves a lot on the table. There's a lot of plays where, you know, Devontae Smith or whatever is streaming wide open deep downfield and two just does, or uh, Jalen Hurts doesn't even put the ball in the air, like doesn't even take the chance. Um, so there's a lot left in terms of what he can do as a passer, but his rushing threat makes the Eagles you know, a top 10 offense in terms of EPA per play, expected points added. Like they become a very difficult team to defend because at any given moment he can take off running and put up whatever it was, 800 yards and 10 touchdowns. Like that that changes a lot and it buys him a lot of room to just be a serviceable passer. Um, and I think the other sort of element is like how much are you paying these guys, right? So Jalen Hurts might be well worth being your starting quarterback as long as he's on that rookie contract, you know, as a second round pick, which is paying him virtually nothing. 
But the second that contract comes due and you've got to decide, well, is he worth $30 million a season? Then the answer probably becomes, well, no, because now all of a sudden you've got to take resources away from the receiving core. That A.J. Brown deal can't get done again. You know, we can't go investing in, in the defense. And that whole dynamic changes once the second contract comes due. I want to ask you about defense um, because I feel like I've been having a lot of fantasy conversations um, at this time of year where people are trying to figure out how to rank people for next year, especially coming off of the schedule release. There were so many conversations about who had the best schedule or the easiest path or the toughest path. And I have a hard time. I don't have the bandwidth for all of the different layers that need to go into figuring that out. Um, but I also feel like it takes, it doesn't take into account um, improvements on the defensive side of the ball or too many people that have that conversation don't take into account how the defense has potentially changed and how we don't know what they're going to look like on the defensive side of the ball. Um, we know who was, you know, bad at like, like the chargers are a good example. I think the chargers had a tough time stopping the run, right? Like from a fantasy standpoint, start your running backs against the chargers. That didn't necessarily mean that the team was going to have much success, but they could right. rack up, you know, some ground yardage. Um, but I, I think that could be different next year because the chargers have obviously made a lot of changes on the defensive side of the ball. Who do you think has, well, first of all, how much variance do you see in defensive success overall from a year to year basis? Is there a lot of change or is it fair to say they might be slightly better or slightly worse based on the changes they make in the off season, but history tells us that defenses tend to be roughly similar to they are to the way they were the year before, or can they like wholesale change? I think they can change significantly, but what the data says is that like one of the biggest driving forces behind that is the quarterbacks that they're facing in any given year. So Washington, I think, is a really good example of that, where I kind of liked the process and a lot of people were high on Washington going into last season because, you know, they had this defense that was playing amazingly and I was the same um, and they, they, they didn't have a shot at a quarterback. So they bring in Ryan Fitzpatrick who okay, he's a roller coaster ride, but it sort of spits out to an average play over the course of a season. And the idea being, if they get average play out of Ryan Fitzpatrick, they've got a great offensive line. They've got Terry McLaurin. They've got a defense playing out of its mind. They're a playoff team again. Um, and then obviously the Ryan Fitzpatrick thing lasted like 40 snaps, but the defense collapsed, right? And the biggest thing was when you look at the sequence of quarterbacks they played when the defense was amazing, and then fast forward 12 months and look at the run that they had to go through last year, it's it's night and day. It's a totally different kind of caliber of quarterback that they're facing on average. And all of a sudden you had these guys that didn't change that much, but they're just facing quarterbacks that are way better and way more capable of punishing them for any mistakes they made or simply challenging them in a way that they weren't challenged the year before. So I think that's a big thing and where strength of schedule matters. It's not necessarily how good the team is overall, but it's what quarterback are you going to be facing next year? And you you see that, you know, not, we said this right at the start, right? Nothing moves a needle as much as quarterback. It is everything. And there's a huge percentage of the Vegas point spread that can be explained simply by the quarterback. And PFF has like a weekly power rankings thing that's up on the website. And we actually quantify sort of how much each individual quarterback is worth to the Vegas point spread, right? And if you take... Aaron Rodgers out of the lineup and replace him with, I mean, Jordan Love, but a replacement level quarterback, 
the line is going to move like seven points. It's going to move a touchdown because Aaron Rodgers isn't in the lineup. And that, like, that can be the point spread in a game, right? If Green Bay is a heavily favored going into a game. They're favored by a touchdown. That difference is Aaron Rodgers. And if he's not there, it disappears. And all of a sudden, the Packers are in a coin toss of a game. Um, and that that happens every week with defense, right? If you're facing an Aaron Rodgers versus whoever, like Sam Darnold, that's that's a seven point def, like differential you're you're in as a defense in any given week. So how do you credit a very good defense? Like if you're the Bills defense, what do you bring to the table in terms of um uh, you know affecting a spread or really impacting the outcome of the game? I mean, it feels like a stupid question because obviously anybody who's watched football understands like a good defense can make it harder to score. Uh, that's not what I'm asking about. I'm just in terms of overall evaluation like that. Yeah, I mean, in terms of how much it affects the Vegas point spread, the honest answer is not much. Like the difference between elite defenses and average defenses and even bad defenses, they're not moving the needle a ton in terms of how much the Vegas line is is moving. Um, the quarterback is way more important than that. But it goes into the sort of overall quality of that team, right? Like if a defense is elite, that team generally is a little bit better. That's baked into the the, the calculations. Um I think what we've seen is that defenses can definitely go on a run in today's NFL where, you know, for a sequence of two, three, four games, um, you can cause all kinds of problems. And the problem, I think, with kind of amassing a really good defense and keeping it together is that you need you need real strength and depth and you need it to stay intact for a period of time. You need four or five defensive backs that are all playing really well. You need pass rushers and you probably need two or three of them at minimum um, who are all generating a ton of pressure. Like when Philadelphia's defense was tearing people up in, in 2017 in their Super Bowl run, they had like seven guys deep on that defensive line that could all generate pressure. And they they were pressuring the quarterback like 45% of the time, like a, a record setting pace. Um, but it's almost impossible to keep that intact, you know, year on year. And they've been kind of trying to to replenish that defensive line and, and keep up with the turnover and haven't quite been able to keep pace there. But like when you have a quarterback, like the, the Chiefs locked down Patrick Mahomes for a decade. So they have they have like an, a built-in advantage every single week for, for the next 10 years. If you have an elite defense, you've got to lock down 10, 15 guys to try and keep that advantage intact. And that's just impossible to do in today's NFL. So in terms of roster building, what would you prioritize? Like, or let, let me do that the, the opposite way. What would you sacrifice? Like, which positions do you think you could get away with more than others saying, like, we're not going to have an elite player there? Or does it, does it differ from team to team? Yeah, I mean, it kind of, it always slightly depends what you're starting with. Um, I think we saw that with the Rams, right? And this whole strategy that they've developed of let's trade away all of the picks of value and pump all the resources into sort of four or five guys that are amazing. I don't know that that works if you're not already decent to begin with, right? Like you can't bring in a Matthew Stafford to take a team over the top. If the team isn't already kind of a playoff team and, and ready for a quarterback to, to make that difference. Um, and we saw that with Detroit, right? Matthew Stafford in theory was the same guy, but Detroit could never put that team around him that was good enough to give him the springboard to take them somewhere different. So it always depends a little bit what you're starting with. But if you're starting from a blank sheet of paper, I would look to, honestly, what the, the, Detroit, the Detroit Lions have done in the last few years is a 
pretty good way of doing it, right? You it's so weird. I'm like singing the Detroit Lions praises all the time these days, and it just feels like something's wrong with the universe. But I agree with you. Like you start in the trenches, if for no other reason than those guys typically tape take a couple of years to develop. Like offensive linemen are usually not at their best until like year two, year three in the NFL. So draft those guys right away, give them enough time to kind of bet in. And then you get the the outside guys, you get the skill position players. And then right when all that's in place, all of a sudden you have a team where a quarterback can step in and actually have that viable platform to work from that we talked about with Tua, right? Once the offensive line's in place and once he's got some guys to throw to, now you can put a quarterback in there and we've seen that they can be good from day one, right? Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, quarterbacks can come in there and be difference makers as rookies. And certainly if they're able to do that, then in year two and three, they can be Super Bowl contenders and take you to the big dance. How far away do you think are the Lions, a team like the Lions? I think they're, I mean, assuming that the guys they brought in last year in particular develop, like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they drafted a couple of defensive linemen, um, Levi and Wuzurike, uh, Ellen McNeil. Those guys didn't play great year one, so we need them to stay, take a step forward. And Sewell needs to keep going. But if those guys all do develop the way they, they're they supposed to, the next year when they find the quarterback, I think they could be a really good team. I think they'll win more games than they're supposed to in 2022. And then next year, if they can find that quarterback, like that guy can step into a good team and, and really make a difference. Sam, you're awesome. On your road trip, uh, are you like the go through the fast food window on a road trip like this? <laughs> does the diet go out the window? Are you going to be very careful? How does this work? Packing I doubt snacks? very much if there's going to be care involved, but that, that doesn't necessarily equate to, you know, just endless fast food. I don't know. That's that's one aspect that we haven't uh, planned out in great detail is exactly what the food situation is going to be like. Well, you know, that would be like my priority. Number one, like, where are we eating dinner as soon as I wake up? You know, so, um, Sam, thank you very much. I really appreciate your perspective and your time. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And you can find more from Sam on Twitter at PFF underscore Sam, the PFF NFL podcast without him for a while, also available wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of which, thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm always grateful for your time and support. If you are not a subscriber already, please consider becoming one. Also, a like and a review would go a long way toward helping us out. I'm also always open to hearing your thoughts about the show on Twitter and Instagram. My handle on Twitter is Lindsay underscore Rhodes. I am Lindsay Rhodes NFL on Instagram. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. Andrew Emmer is our wonderful producer. Marissa Rivas is the acting director of sports podcasts for SiriusXM. And Steve Cohen is the SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting. And a big thank you to all of those people. Thank you again to you for listening. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you back here again next week. Serious XM Podcasts.